Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of While We Were Waiting, a podcast that highlights the funniest, most uplifting, and sometimes even downright crazy stories from inside the restaurant. I'm your host, Martha Madison. And I am her husband and co-host, AJ Gilbert. (laughs) I love it when you say that. Today, we're going to talk about addiction in the restaurant. And we know this is a big thing in the restaurant industry. And we have two special guests we're going to chat with about that. Chuck and Carly Meyer, owners of Napa Palisades Saloon, Napa Palisades Beer Company, and the new First in Franklin Marketplace in Napa, California. But first... First, I wanted to reflect again on what how great it was to talk to Chuck and Carly. Um, it's just been so much fun. It was a lot of fun. These uh, So Chuck and Carly both worked for La Luna Park uh, restaurants and actually met there and fell in love and got married and had babies and <laughs> had a very similar um, experience through Luna Park that you and I did. So I think that gave us a, a special bond and it's been really great to catch up with them. And I hope it kind of comes through if it's a subtle mission that we have in this to show how important restaurants are in people's lives in so many ways. You know, it's very easy to talk about the things that restaurants don't do well and the pay in equity and all that kind of stuff. And those are big problems that we probably need to solve on more of a societal level than just just in one industry or one business. But restaurants provide a lot of opportunity for everything for people. And I, I hope that comes through in the stories we're telling. Definitely. You know, it's kind of like what we were saying in a, in a couple episodes ago, we were talking about every restaurant job that you have, that crew becomes part of your family, your network, your your fabric of who you are. And um, a lot of these relationships are very long lasting. And the fact that everybody has been out of work and away from each other is is been really hard on many of us to not be able to see each other and hug each other and catch up, you know, other than Zoom calls and and podcasts. So um, it's a whole other layer of pain that we're all feeling. And so it's a good theme for this episode, because I do think that a fair amount of people that end up in the restaurant business also battle some demons that might lead them to addiction and, um, and substance abuse or alcoholism. And it's, uh, it's not a rare thing. We talked about how the restaurant business itself is kind of addictive. And and I think that that's part of the reason that it attracts. I mean, first of all, you're around booze, you get paid in cash, you work at night. I mean, there's lots of things that make it unusual and can bring out people's demons or can attract people who have demons. But the actual cycle of a shift is is unusual and it stimulates people's endorphins. You know, you start the day or the evening bored, waiting for things to happen. The restaurant fills up and you get super stimulated and often overstimulated. And the people that tend to do the restaurant business very well are people that can deal with a lot of inputs at once, which is kind of a characteristic of the addictive brain anyway. Mm-hmm. And you have all this stuff to do and you get into it and, and you have fun and you're working with your friends and there's that sense of camaraderie and then everybody leaves and then it's over and you're tired and you know, the, the sensations all end and usually people start drinking or doing other things at that point. And, you know, that's, that's part of the, the actual experience of working in restaurants is kind of like getting high unto itself. It's true. You have all of this adrenaline, this huge rush of energy. And at the end, it's just like it ends, it's over. And I think a lot of uh, people that I know and, and even myself included will 
you know, want to extend that rush. So you go and grab a drink or whatever it is you're going to do to kind of keep that rush going, or at least soften the landing, you know, at the end Simil- of the night. Similar to, to performing on stage. Sure. Right? Sure. I mean, all of these things I can say I've experienced. <laughs> and so I can't talk about, you know, specifically what makes everybody end up in that. But for me personally, I think just growing up in my life in general, I got very comfortable with a certain amount of chaos and uncertainty, right? So it made me a little neurotic and maybe a little anxious and and made me even more so as I got older, a little more controlling and a little more OCD, like really trying to control my environment so that it wasn't chaotic and crazy. And and honestly, that translated really well to the restaurant industry because it is such a chaotic environment, but you can make it make systems out of that and you can organize that. And I just thrived in that kind of environment. And so for me, uh, you know, coming from a perspective of, you know, grabbing a few drinks after work every night, uh, you know, definitely is part of that process for me. Yeah. Hearing you describe that kind of order to chaos, it kind of made my hair stand up because I mean, that was, that is the restaurant business for me is, you know, I grew up in a chaotic, messy house and making a restaurant orderly and function, you know, in a, in a organized manner in the midst of chaos is like my mission. Right. And that, and it is just a complete expression of, of trying to write everything that bothered me from the past. Right. But if you can really do that, if you can, you know, over procedure your <laughs> restaurant, uh, you're going to do well. You're going to make more money than the next guy. And so you, you feel that success and you feel that applause, whatever that is to you, that immediate uh, reaction that we can get so quote unquote high off of. Um, and I am sure that's part of the reason we were <laughs> initially attracted to each other. And you should see our life now. We are so on a schedule. We're like, <laughs> Yeah. It's so habitual, like every day looks exactly the same. Yeah. yeah but the, that's a good the, thing for us. <laughs> the bread station at Restaurant Lulu, and there was a, we had, we baked our own sourdough bread, really hard crust. And when you cut it, the crumbs would fly everywhere. And the kind of chef owner, uh, Reed, said to me one day that there shouldn't be crumbs on the bread station. And so we had two or three bussers on at a time. And I worked all nights and I figured out a system where there wouldn't be crumbs on the, you know, they had to cut the bread and wipe the crumbs down this hole and it all worked very well. And I would come in at lunch and the bread station would be covered in crumbs. And I'm sure that the day manager had gotten that same directive, but the sense of satisfaction of overcoming those bread crumbs was. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And that's what it's all about. But this is one of those things, like I can point out a place in the restaurant where you're contradicting yourself a little bit because you like to overbook dining rooms. And you, this was one of the things I think was one of the best lessons I learned from you, but also one of the scariest is that you would fully book the open table and then you would still see all the walk-ins. And it was was like more strategic than that. Well, for you, not for me or the hostesses. And we're all like, oh crap, what are we going to (laughs) do? No, There's and no- this is, and, and I, you know, and I'm sure this is expresses itself in all sorts of businesses, but you really create the reality that you, you know, when you have your own business, you create a reality that reflects your personality. And I would make it chaotic every night and then mop it up for a few hours and feel this sense of satisfaction that I'd fixed the chaos that I had sown 
How interesting uh, to hear you admit that (laughs) live in front of the entire world. I'm so happy that's on audio here. Well, it it hasn't, it might be cut out. (laughs) No, and you know, and and listen, I I do think that maturing and, you know, I still love overbooked dining rooms, uh, but I, I think that just in terms of building a restaurant and certainly this last one that we've done together, you know, taking the chaos out has been incredibly satisfying, not building it in and then taking it out, but just doing right. it without the chaos. And right. I, I do feel lessons learned and, and grateful for those experiences, which is a great segue into the other thing we were going to talk about today, which is failure, right? Right. You know, right. I've been struck by the number of restaurants that are closing while they're closed. Mm-hmm. So, like you know, permanently it's like, right? closing, right? Yeah. And, and for some reason, somebody needed to come out and say, you know, we're not going to reopen. And I suspect that there's, you know, relationships with employees and investors and vendors and stuff that they need to explain that to. If you're closed, you know, that doesn't seem like the biggest thing you'd want to do is send out a press release saying we're not going to reopen. But people are doing that already. And I think a lot of places won't reopen. I've been thinking a lot about what it what it's like, and we've had places that have been phenomenally successful, and then you know we've talked a bit about Pata Salada that was just a complete failure. I mean, never succeeded. Maybe one night that was busy. A stake in the heart. <laughs> that place almost yeah. killed me. Yes. And you know it's it's really hard, but it's funny because in this society we we pretend like it's okay to fail in business, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody, you know, people that have had all these tech startups, they failed like 10 times and then they make one that has a billion dollars in value and mm-hmm. aren't they heroes. And, you know, once you fail, it's just about knowing to stop and start again and, you know, and, and all that stuff. But it doesn't feel that way when it's happening, does it? Well, it doesn't because it's a very tangible thing that involves human people face to face every day. And, uh, you know, and it's also a very public career, right? You can check out a Yelp, you can check out reviews, you you know, everybody, if you, if you have a restaurant, uh, the people that you admire or you know, or who are the closest to you know about that restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> if, if it fails, you know, there are a million reasons. Those of us in the restaurant industry know that there are a million reasons a restaurant can fail that aren't necessarily about the restaurant itself, Right. And but in general, the guests that patronize your restaurant don't know those ins and outs. And so if they see a restaurant fail, they think, oh, she's bad at her job or, oh, the food must have been bad. Or, you know, they're not thinking about the fact that, oh, the, you know, the subway was being built across the street or, oh, they laid the floor crooked. So it cost them an extra forty thousand dollars that they couldn't recoup, you know, like all these different reasons that actually did add to the problems that we had in that restaurant. And and you can't really explain that to everybody either. So and it's worse than that, because there's a restaurant on their street that is doing really well. And if you just did what they did, you would be as successful as them. Right. I mean, every every restaurant that is slow or is not doing well invites all sorts of advice and, you know, and uh, ideas based on something that's, you know, probably you don't even have the money to make the changes. But, you know, I think a lot of people are going to go through this and, you know, perhaps because it's a pandemic, people won't feel the shame of failing, you know, when it's not like happening all around. But, um, you know, I, I just thought we could offer our, you know, words to, you know, and I, I, I think a lot of it depends on where the economy is and what you're coming out into. And it's certainly not easy 
but it is much easier if you can let go of the embarrassment and of the shame and just recognize that the job becomes moving on to the next thing. And I think people get so stuck in the, the, the restaurant that closed and emotionally spend so much time there that it's very hard to clear out the, the space to do something new. And I, I think that my advice to anybody who's in that position is it will, you know, that the, whatever it took to get you to open that first restaurant or that 10th restaurant or wherever you are in your journey, that part doesn't go away. And you get to use that whenever you want. And it might not feel like it. It might not feel like a bank's ever going to loan you money or you're ever going to get investors or whatever. Just don't worry about that. Close the place as well as you can. Deal with your life as well as you can. And stuff will start to open up when it's time. That's right. You think about the enormous amount of energy, mental capacity, soul energy, all that stuff that these things can take up. And when you finally decide to close the door and, and let it go, you immediately open up all of this space in you to do whatever it is you're going to do next. I remember when Luna Park was winding down and you were closing in on the sale of, of Luna Park, San Francisco. And I just kept saying to you, Luna Park is not a place. Luna Park is you. You are going to continue on and you will do that again. And you did again and again. <laughs> You know, uh, it's, it's all in you. That is great advice. And I hope everyone who's listening who might be uh, dealing with impending closures of your business really, really sit on that for a minute. Really think about the fact that, A, you're not alone. And B, what is it inside of you that made this happen in the first place? And can I re-harness that again? And give yourself time. Because it, to go out and think, you know, I'm going to solve all this. I mean, we, we have people in our orbit right now that are kind of in this position of like, I need to start something immediately. And I understand I'm not discounting the financial pressure that people are under right now. But I'm just saying in terms, if you can put that all to the side, at least in, in your understanding of what's going to come, there will be a time when everything opens up and you see a path to do something else. And it, it might not be right now. Um, That's right. Give yourself time to come up with the idea, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and the other thing is how long is a restaurant supposed to last, right? I mean, a lot of these places that are closing now are announcing they're going to, these are somewhat iconic places that have been open 10, 15 years. I think it's important to remember when the restaurant is closing that nobody will say at that time, boy, that was a good long run. It, you'll never feel that. You you really have to get some space and you can look back and you're like, wow, that was a good long run. That was a great experience in retrospect, but it won't feel that way when you're locking the doors. No. I guess the best, the, the moral of this episode is you will be okay and there is life after closure. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that's very well said. Okay. While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters, a full-service hospitality recruitment firm serving all of North America. For more information, check out our website at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. Okay, I'm so excited to uh, introduce our guests today. We have Chuck and Carly Meyer, who are really dear friends of ours and also co-owners of Napa Palisades Saloon, at Napa Palisades Beer Company, and First and Franklin Marketplace in downtown Napa. Welcome to the show, Chuck and Carly. Woo! Hi, guys. What's happening? 
<laughs> so how did you guys end up opening a beer pub in the heart of the wine country? What was the genesis of that? Well, the genesis was, uh, you know, I think you kind of want to zig while other people are zagging, right? Like you go to the wine country and, and it's funny because we originally moved to the wine country because, well, A, Carly's from here, uh, but B, we both love spending time here and we both enjoyed wine. Um, and I always thought, you know, I actually would be getting a job in the wine industry and, and I was attracted to that. And uh, when I got here, I realized, wow, you know, there's really beer is happening everywhere. You know, we take these trips to Bend, Oregon, or we go to, you know, uh, Portland and the whole town is full of breweries and brew pubs and, and Napa has nothing. Um, so it just seemed like an, an incredible opportunity. And, you know, I love beer as well. You know, in, in, in Napa, there's either you either go to Applebee's or you go to the French Laundry. Uh, most of the people with resources wouldn't open a dirty beer bar. Um, right. What you wouldn't know is that, you know, Napa's actually really kind of a working class town. And then you just opened a new business, which I didn't know about until we were just talking earlier. What is uh, the market? Yeah, and that's the funny thing. The the date uh, opening date of First and Franklin Marketplace was March sixteenth. Oh no! Wow. <laughs> Very ill timed. Did you open, or are you holding we, off? We did not. We held off. Um, we just, no. you know, even though it actually is a pretty good model for what's happening right now. Yeah, um, I was gonna say having a marketplace right now is exactly what most people are pivoting to. It's right on the corner of First and Franklin, hence the name First and Franklin. Um, but First and Franklin is actually a really great uh, central location in downtown Napa. It's kind of one of the big corners of Napa. Um, there's two large hotels across the street. There's the Andaz and the Archer Hotel. Um, and the concept is kind of your one-stop shop when you get to your hotel room. You come down, get your, you know, bag of chips and a six pack of beer and a couple of bottles of, you know, half bottles of wine, uh, maybe your Napa Valley t-shirt because there's a section of t-shirts. Um, you can get all your little souvenirs um, and it's got a little wine bar off to the side that features uh, local wineries. Uh, we have partnerships with 12 local wineries that don't have tasting rooms in downtown Napa. Um, so we kind of operate as their de facto tasting room. I'm looking around at all the, you know, people trying to do really fancy stuff. And I, I just think there, we need more regular people stuff in Napa. And that's just kind of the bottom line. And, and I think that that stuff even plays a lot with the people that have money, you know, well, you just because you mention, have money doesn't mean you want to waste you it. You to mention the deli, the draft right. beer and the soft serve. We just put it on pause because... You know, right when the shelter at home orders came out, we thought, yeah, let's let, let's let's pause. Let's not start spending ridiculous amounts of money uh, until we figure out where this is all going. So at some point at the beginning of the year, you hear about this virus. What was your experience? What what happened? Uh, it was quick. We I mean, just like everyone else, we started to hear about it. Um, I think it happened within a week. We we were implementing hand washing and cleaning, and we were talking about you know how we were going to announce to our clientele how we were staying clean. And then all of a sudden, I think it was the day before St. Patrick's Day, we decided to 
closed thinking you know, it might be for a week or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it just sort of, it, you know, it happened really quickly. Well, it was that, that weekend before St. Patrick's Day is where I think a lot of us really started to get um, the information uh, that we hadn't got before. I, I read a story, I think it was on Medium. The guy was just basically saying, hey, you know, if you're an industry leader, if you're a community leader, you need to read this. You need to understand how epidemics work. And you, you know, you're going to be responsible for shutting your business down. And and it's the responsible thing to do. So I, you know, I, and I read that. And actually, you know, funny thing, I was on a plane to Arizona, because I was supposed to go to spring training to meet a bunch of my college buddies. And, oh. and so, you know, the week before we're like, okay, we're going on this trip. You know, are you guys worried about going? No, I'm not really worried about going. And, you know, hopefully the, you know, virus doesn't seem to be spreading too quickly. Do we need to worry about it? And then, you know, I had a lot of time to read on the plane and all I was reading about was a virus. And I came to the realization on that plane flight that A, what I was doing currently was crazy. And why am I on the plane? <laughs> uh, and B, when I get home, I've got to shut down my restaurant. And, yeah. uh, and it's the, the right, whether the government asked me to do it or not, it's the right thing to do. Um, and then I've got to figure it out from there. And, uh, you know, the, the, there, it was just very funny, the different ways that people looked at this, you know, we are a pub that one of our busiest days of the year is St. Patrick's day. Right. I'm concerned about getting the place closed before that because I didn't want to be, you know, this basically hotspot epidemic, you know, central. And yeah. uh, and the pub down the street put out one of those, you know, balloon guys that like you see it used car lots going, <laughs> you know, and it was just kind of, you know, how funny it is and how differently we all look at this and how right. uh, how divisive it is. You guys were closed when the order to close came from the county, I guess, at that point, right? Right. Yeah. It, we were closed like two days early. It's funny. The, that last weekend, we were as busy as as, as we've been, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that I fear about opening back up is that, you know, we're going to be busy. And we've got to figure out how to protect our workers and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the staff. It's a, it's a lot of responsibility on us. People are talking about how to safely social distance all of the patrons in restaurants, but we haven't really heard a lot about <laughs> the the mechanics of socially distancing the people who work in our kitchens, which are usually tiny and very close together. And I don't really see that there's a way to do that safely. We talked a lot about trying to shift things out and and having people work together in small groups that uh, that all work together at the same. Like you know, having an, an A team, a B team, a C team. C team always works together. B team always works together. A team always works together. Smart. So mm-hmm. Sort of separating them out. So if you do have a breakout, it happens in a section or a subsection of your 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 crew. And you don't intermix the crews. They don't work. You know, the dishwasher from team B doesn't work for team C. Right. Obviously that's going to be really, really hard to do. And but uh, it's such a great idea. And that's actually the, one of the first uh, great new ideas I've heard in a while. One other thing we've talked about also is um, going in, uh, getting things really ready, thinking, you know, holistically about the menu. 
and being able to do things with one or two people going really prep heavy. So the prep team could work at one time, they leave, sanitize everything, wash it all down, and then the line team comes in. So you separate those teams and the prep team really, you know, normally they really set you up for success, but this would be even more so it's, you know, like putting things in, uh, you know, uh, vacuum sealed bags, like you put the stew in vacuum sealed bags, you've got potatoes portioned out in vacuum sealed bags, and those can get dropped into hot boiling water to heat it up. And you just kind of thinking about the menu that way in that you could divide up the people so they're not actually working together as much right. as in the past. So it sounds like your guys' real concern is about having the staff get sick in both from a you know humanist point of view, but also from you know what from that would mean to your comp business, right? Kind of thing right. too. Yeah. Workers comp, 14 days of sick pay. Well, yeah, because another thing to think about is if we do have an outbreak in our staff, then we have to close again for another right. month, you know. And, and then obviously people would recognize yep. yeah. this restaurant had an outbreak. Right. Yeah. Like the first restaurant to have an outbreak is not the Palisade Saloon or, you know, <laughs> like, right. right. We don't want I, that. I, I, <laughs> I got to, I don't know if I, I was always trying to remember now which one it was, but there was, it was swine flu or one of the kind of smaller pandemics that are epidemics that happened a few years ago. And JJ, you remember JJ, the chef at Luna Park yeah. LA? Yep. He called me and he said, uh, so-and-so the cook uh, has swine flu. I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> and of course it wasn't, but it was like, I, I went through that whole, emo I was like, oh, this is going to be in the LA Times. And it was just, oh my God. So what's, what's the status of your staff? What's everybody doing now? On March 16th, I literally told every person, hey, uh, you know, apply for unemployment today, right now. Everybody's going to start closing down, get on top of it. We've been feeding the staff on a weekly basis. We do a like a kind of a grocery drive for them, ordering stuff from our suppliers and the farmer's market um, and doing like a grocery box for the staff. Um, That's great. So, and it's been good to keep in contact with everybody. So they all, you know, come through and they grab their box and it's set up at Tim's house. We have a, actually a, a container, eight by 20 um, refrigerated container um, in his backyard. Uh, so it's a big walk-in. So we've been keeping food in there and, you know, keeping keeping them fed. And so we're just, you know, trying to help people out and kind of keeping everybody in communication. It's been really good for the team building on on their part. They, they all see each other and kind of have been together through this thing. Um, and then I think something like that, maybe to the public, to your point earlier, Martha, about, you know, like marketplace, you, we kind of want to do this like grocery box delivery uh, thing out of our deli and market when we first get going. Uh, yeah. That will be the first thing we start with. And then the saloon will probably go back to, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably ramp up like curbside and cocktails to go. Um, but probably just like Friday and Saturday night, we just got approved for a PPP loan and oh, we have to spend that money. So it's just kind of ridiculous the way they set up that program. You do what's right for your business, do what's smart for your business you know, if you use the PPP as much as you can in the proper way and then let things, you know, fall where they will um, and hope actually, you know, my hope has been that they just start extending these things and give us more forgiveness on that. Um, yeah. And that'll make it a really helpful thing. 
Well, I think this is a really good time to pivot to our story time with our guests. Uh, Chuck and Carly, you're up. If anybody, if you guys know, or Martha, if you know that AJ was the first person to hire me in the restaurant industry, I had very little experience and he hired me as a host at um, the Last Supper Club down on, what was it, 23rd and Valencia? Gosh, I was like 22 years old, maybe? God. A, um, AKA, <laughs> AJ's just an old, old, old man. So, <laughs> how do you know how old I was? I think I was 29 or... Because yeah, I know I you didn't open Last Supper Club until you were 31. So. Okay, so you were 31. Every, every year I get older, you get older too. Yes, but I'll always be seven years younger than you. So AJ, you hired me as a host, and then um, I I transferred over to Luna Park. This man, uh, Chuck Meyer, came in as our manager. That's how our story began. In my 20s, there was a lot of, you know, drinking and going out after work and um it we had the best time i mean it was so much fun being 20 do you do you remember doing music with joe and dave at the studio they rented or something oh yeah aj i remember all of it i mean i don't know you would you would often be gone but joe jack after work would come in and open like five bottles of prosecco and invite us all back to the studio Well, no, I mean, it was great. I was like, you If know, it makes you feel any better, Tim still does the same thing to me now. When I worked at Last Supper Club, I met um, my two greatest friends that are still my great friends today, Anna and Hani. You know, all these people that I've met are now like in our family, you know, like Tim's now our chef and like, you know, he's like Joey living above, like living above <laughs> us in the garage, you know, <laughs> like, and we love him like, like a brother and, you know, we fight like brothers and sisters. My story goes that we had so much fun in my 20s and then um, you know I met Chuck and I met Anna and I met Hani and all these great friends and then the the party became a little bit too much a part of my life the drinking had to end and I found um, sobriety was and there so- a, was there a moment when you uh, made the decision that you were gonna be sober I would say more a year mm-hmm. <laughs> a year of, of just really tough a lot of drinking and a lot, you know, not being a very healthy. You were sick because she yeah. got very, very sick. Like, you know, I mean, am I allowed to say that? Oh, yeah. We, I'm an okay. open book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she got very, very sick. Her liver was so damaged that um, basically the doctor came to her and said, you need to stop drinking. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and, exactly what happened. <laughs> and then, you know, what was interesting is uh, how hard that was to do. Yeah. And, and that's when I think you realized. Oh, yeah. When you realize that you need help to stop drinking, then you know you have a problem. At least that was the case for me. A year after I stopped drinking, we opened this beer bar. When Chuck came to me and said, I think we should open this place, I was like, well, I can't work there. 
you know, I can't work around around booze that much. My drink of choice was white wine, and um, we also had tap white wine. We opened this place, and Chuck and I were there every night. I served for the first year, I think. Chuck was the GM, and, and I did it all sober, and it was crazy, and then a whole new experience. Like, kind of funny watching everyone get wasted at the end. <laughs> it's sad, uh, I mean, at the end of the shift. It's sad to see people that are struggling. You know, we've had to let people go. Um, that that you know are drunk on the job or that suffer from alcoholism and it's hard to watch because you know I can like recognize parts of myself in them and and know that that they're suffering or and they can't get out of it you know or they're behind the bar and and they're drinking or um but and it's hard at times you know it's hard like New Year's Eve when everyone's opening champagne and and you want to be part of it but you know that's just not a, a possibility or it's not an option anymore for you but really, it's um, it's great. It's refreshing, and, you, and you're proud of yourself because I think a lot of us maybe started in the restaurant industry because um, it is kind of a party and it's fun. And but then it just sort of becomes part of your life, and um, the alcohol can't necessarily be part of your life anymore. basically opened up you know and and then we had the successful restaurant and then we had started our family and and here we are now like you know the restaurants been open five years I've been sober six years and we have our second our second child none of which would have been possible without sobriety you know and none of this whole this whole life wouldn't have been possible without meeting in the restaurant really I want to create a TV show about AA meetings in the Napa Valley. <laughs> you'll never get it, AJ. You'll never be able to do it. They won't let you. It is classic, though. Well, you know what's funny is there's like well-known winemakers, like wine that you're probably drinking on a regular basis. Their names on your labels that are yeah. in the AA program that do not drink, that have never have never tasted their own wine. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of While We Were Waiting. And thank you to our guests, Chuck and Carly Meyer, owners of Napa Palisade Saloon in Napa, California. Also, First and Franklin Marketplace in Napa, California. You can find out more about them on their website, NapaPalisades.com. And you can find us at WhileWeWereWaitingPodcast.com and also on social at Waiting Podcast. If you're like me and need some visuals to connect to the stories we told today, we have those up on our website under episode pictures. Go check them out. And if you like what you're hearing, please share, subscribe, like, comment, do all that fun stuff online. It helps us get seen. And if you'd like to share your stories with us, we want to hear from you. Just shoot us an email at stories at WhileWeWereWaitingPodcast.com. So until we meet again, stay home, stay healthy, stay sane, stay sober. Take care, everyone. Once I rose above the noise and confusion Just to get a glimpse beyond this illusion I was soaring ever high